Amen. Amen. There is a lot going on, and I'm excited about that. It's kind of getting to the point where I was talking to somebody in between services, and it's like, hey, you know what? It's like, uh, I'm going to have to do something because last year I missed going on vacation in the summer because it got so busy. And so it's like, if I don't actually plan something and say, no, I'm leaving at this point, then I'm afraid that I will miss something, like the whole summer. And so that's not going to happen. So all of these things are going on in the vineyard, and they go on your calendar, and it's a good place to put them. Um, like Jeff said, Pastor Jeff said, there's a good place for you to find the information, and that's at vineyardrichmond.com or through the newsletter that goes out once a month so you can stay on track. But in the meantime, right now, we are into the third um, uh, uh, sermon in our series, Are You Going the Right Way? And I prefaced this last week, um, uh, and I'll preface it again, and I'll probably do it every single Sunday morning. Here's the deal. Why are we doing this sermon series? We're doing a sermon series called Are You Going the Right Way? And it's being written by um, the Apostle John, or the Disciple John, however you want to call him. Okay, And John is the brother of uh, James. We're talking about John the Baptist in this thing that I'm about to say, and that is this. John the Baptist was born miraculously to his parents who were old. God came to them. They had a baby. Yeah, okay. So John is out preaching at the Jordan. He's preaching at the river, and here comes Jesus. All right? Jesus is 30 years old. John looks up. He's six months older than Jesus. He looks up. He sees Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Does John know who Jesus is? Sure he does. And he says, the reason I know who he is is because the Lord told me, the Holy Spirit said, the person on whom the dove lands, that's the one. That's the Messiah. That's the Son of God. Now, fast forward, um, as Jesus enters into his ministry, John gets in the face of the governor of the region and over his marriage. And as a result of that, he ends up in prison knowing full well he's going to probably die. And before he dies... He's humble enough to tell his disciples, John the Baptist had disciples. He said, you go see my kin. You go see Jesus. You go see the guy that I baptized that I didn't want to baptize, that I said, no, you should baptize me, who said, suffer it to be so, for thus it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. He said, you go find him, and you ask him if he really is the one. You see what's going on? John the Baptist was so hungry for God and so hungry for Jesus, the Messiah, to come that even he was willing to say, I'm going to die tomorrow. God, please tell me I got this right. And so we're backing up and we're saying here, what does the Gospel of John, what does John's account of the Gospel of Jesus Christ say about what it means to follow Jesus Christ? Doesn't matter what your granny said, doesn't matter what your grandpa said, doesn't matter what your pastor said, I'm here to tell you right now, it does not matter what Joe Wood says. What I want to say is, what does the Bible say about what the Bible says, written by John, who is standing in the man's presence during everything that he wrote down? See, John's not telling us a story that he carefully researched like Luke did. John is telling us what happened in his life. I was there. We were fishing. He showed up. Follow me. We followed him. This is the next three and a half years. I'm telling you people, this is John writing. I'm telling you people, there's not enough pages on the earth to write down all of the things that Jesus did. But these things are written so that you might, here comes the word, believe. 
Believe that He is the Christ. Believe that He is the Messiah. Believe that He is the Son of God. Believe that He came down here and did the very things He said. This is John who is a legal first-person testimony to what he saw, and therefore we can do this. So as we, as we read this book, as we continue on in this book, uh, in this letter, I want you to do this. Don't look at this thing and say, well, what did John say happened? No, 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 no. That's not the point. Who cares what John wrote down? What John wants you to do is say, huh, if this is true, what does that mean for me? What do I need to do? Because John said, I wrote this so that you would believe. Believe what? Today when you come in here, what is it that he wants you to believe? What did you drag in here? What's your baggage? What's your, what's your sin? Okay? What's your celebration? What's your victory? It's, it's not always bad stuff. It's like, it's church, but it's like, it's not always bad. Come on. What did you come in here and you're like, oh, you know what God did? This was amazing. Or what did you come in here going, man, I don't know if God cares about this part of my life. What did you come in here with? Because I believe that John wants you to believe that what he wrote down is enough to convince you to believe that Jesus wants to touch that. And I promise you, I believe that with all of my heart. And so I would encourage you to stop and say, wow, Lord, what do you want, me, what do you want to say to me as a result of me believing what John wrote? He doesn't want you to just read and know. He wants you to believe, and as a result of believing, he wants you to act. And it says in the book of John, in chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. This is what was written down. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. On the third day, after Jesus went and selected James and John, Simon, Andrew, Nathaniel, Philip, and, and called them and just walked by and said, come, follow me. And they believed and quickly left their nets and their fish and their boats and their dad and their business. Three days after he picked those five or six guys, they were at a wedding in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. Man, 30 years old, and you hate when your mom shows up, right, to work. Wow. Oh. And she's like, got something to say to you. Like, hey, you forgot to pick up your underwear. You know, it's like, mom, I'm at work. Come on. And so Mary gets to go to the wedding. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Nearby stood six stone water jars. I have to say that carefully because it just it all runs together if you try to say it three times real fast, okay? And, you know, I'm going to keep saying it. So nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for, uh, by the Jews for some ceremonially, or ceremonial washing. Okay, do you know what the, the jars were for? They held water. Do you know what the water was for? For people to come into the house, dip their hands in the water, wash their hands, dip them back in the water, rinse it off, and go on. I don't know how full the jars were. I know there's six of them because the Bible says nearby were six stone water jars, okay, the kind used for ceremonially washing. Each one held 20 to 30 gallons. You following me? That's, that's big. That's a lot. Okay, I don't know if you can see it or not, but it just so happens to be the size of that stock tank right there. There's between 120, there's the potential to have between 120 and 180 gallons of water in those six jars. That's a 170-gallon tank if you fill it up. Okay, so if you look at that, you say, that, that would be the equivalent right there of what's going on. Whoops. Okay, and so um, Jesus says... Um, Take, uh, fill those jars with water, 
to the servants. He says, you go fill those jars, six of them, with water. And, and, and so they did. They filled them, check this out, they filled them to the brim. They filled them all the way up. Jesus said, fill them. He didn't say put some water in them. He said, fill them up. And so they filled them all the way to the brim. And because I did it in the first service, and it's not my notes, I got to do it this time. So you know what I'm talking about. There's tension on top of the, the, the water jar, okay? Big stone marble water jar, and there's tension. Have you ever gone to Purdy's and got a latte? Do you go to Purdy's? Do you not go to Purdy's? You're going to burn in hell. Uh, no, not really. You won't burn in hell if you don't go to Purdy's. It's okay. But you're missing out on a real treat that the Lord meant for you to have. But that being said, have you ever had a good latte? Okay, and I say good latte because you've got to go to a craft shop to get it. But have you ever had a good latte? A real latte, Kara Purdy, is supposed to have so much in the cup that there is tension at the top of the cup. And it just, it's like... It, it's like, don't say, leave it down a quarter of an inch. No, no, no. A real latte will be filled full to the top so that the tension of the, water, the liquid is over the edge of the cup and it holds it in there. And then when you get it, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, sip before you walk. Walk, walk, sip, whoop, walk, walk. And that, it's, that's filled to the brim. That is something that is filled to the brim, okay? That's how you know it's... Six stone water jars filled to the brim. And that's what's going on in this story. And we see this thing begin to unfold right smack in front of us. And so um, Jesus says, do that. You see? And then the, um, Jesus said, now, I want you to draw some out. And I went into, into the kitchen area, the kitchen prep area, and we don't have a ladle. I mean, we don't make a lot of soups and, you know, spaghetti and stuff, but we don't have a ladle. And I was sure one of you, uh, you know, ladies had left a ladle in there because I'd seen it before. And I was, I had, wow, I was amazing sermon illustration. I left worship to do this and someone took it home. Seriously, you can't leave it here for Jesus for a little bit longer. Okay, it was a ladle. He said, go take the ladle and dip some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And so that is exactly what happened. They did that. Draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. So they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. Do you think Jesus is trying to make a point there? Do you think he's trying to be really, really specific? The servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom, the master of the banquet, called the bridegroom aside and said, Whoa, everybody brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you brought out the good stuff now at the end. What Jesus did here in Canaan, Galilee, was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, his first miracle. And his disciples saw it and they believed him. Him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples and stayed there for a few days. So I love this story. I love this story because of the way it unfolds. I love this story because of all the practical implications that we can take from it. I love this story because John is trying to get you to believe something. He's not trying to get you to know something. John doesn't want you to know that Jesus turned the water to wine. It doesn't take anything to know. He could have just said, and he turned the water to wine. He, he, he didn't do that. John wants you to believe something about Jesus turning. If Jesus turned the water to wine, what do I need to take home from that? When I'm sitting having my quiet time and I say, Lord, I know this story. Jesus turned the water to wine and these kids don't sit down. I'm going to drink the whole bottle. Okay? No, really, don't do that. Okay? But I'm just saying, John wants you to know something. So who's, who's here at the story? It's a narrative, but who's here at the story? Mary's there, huh? Jesus' mother, very, very famous lady, 
Okay, a lot of people know who she is. Jesus was there, miraculous mini ministry about to launch right there in Cana of Galilee. The disciples were with him. The servants were there at the wedding. The master of the banquet was there at the wedding. The bridegroom was there at the wedding. The, the bride was at the wedding. The bride's family and the bridegroom's family, everybody was at the wedding. Everybody who's anybody was at the wedding. You see, when they threw a wedding in, the, in Jesus' days, you know, I mean, if you were like big and fancy, yeah, you probably had a seven-day wedding. But generally speaking, the, the, the wedding's supposed to last, you know, two, maybe three days. You know, it's like my daughters are probably thinking, Dad, you cheated us, man. You know, you got two to three hours. You know, you got, you know, some things to eat. You got some things to drink. You got some things to serve. You had some cake. It was all good. You know, I, I am not somebody who likes weddings. I, I'm, I'm just going to tell you as a pastor, I hate weddings. You know, people come up to me. It's like, will you do my wedding? It's like, oh, man. I, I, do we got a guy that does that at our church? You know, it's like, yeah, it's you. It's like, oh, man. It's like, give me a funeral. Let me do a funeral. At a wedding, I'm so worried, ladies, that I get it all right for you. I really am. It's, it's a performance. It's, it's, it's structured. It's like you've been dreaming about it since you were a little girl. You're like, and then my dad's going to walk me down the aisle, and then, and then this is going to happen, and the pastor's going to say this, and we're going to do this, and he's going to kiss me, he's going to put a ring on my finger. It's going to be so good, and then we're going to have party, and you know, we're going to have Garth Brooks and you know, Shameless. It's like, whatever. I don't know what you did at your wedding. I didn't do that at my wedding, okay? I just know a guy that did that at his wedding. It's shameless. She walked down the aisle. It's like, no, no. Okay, but that being said, you dream about your wedding, right? And I'm just like, ah, oh, I'm going to screw it up. So I'm trying to do it right. I want to be a little humorous. I want to make a smile. I want to tell the truth to some people. Because the, the bride and the groom, they're not listening. Okay, I've never had a bride and groom listen at the wedding. You know, they're looking at each other, and they're actually talking. You don't know it, maybe, but they're talking to each other. They really aren't. I'm talking to them under my Be cool. We're going to do this. And they're like, I love you so much. I can't believe we're doing this. And, you know, he's like, babe, don't cry. It's okay. We can get through it. It's all right. And I'm like, I'm here for you. And they're like, shut up. We're talking to each other. It's like, okay, we're good. You know, I got to make it go smooth. At a funeral, somebody died. And I'm like, hey. Your friend died. I can't tell you about your friend, but let me tell you about my God that he just met because one day you're going to lay in this box. Let me tell you that God loves you and he came to save you and he's going to call you a home. And you can do that at a funeral and people are like, yeah, bring it, bring it. You know, they're that way. But we're at a wedding and the wedding's supposed to last a little while. I, I, I imagine the ceremony was short. You've seen, you know, uh, the, the, you know, some of the stuff on TV. You throw the cup down, crunch it, we're married, okay, let's have a party. But somewhere in here, somewhere in here, we have a problem because this is the narrative. No, number one is the narrative. This is the narrative, okay? Three days after Jesus called his disciples, they're up here, they're in and around Galilee. You know where Galilee is? You know where Cana is? This is where it is, okay? So Jerusalem is down below where it says Jesus, Okay? The blue over there, Decapolis, that's not a lake at all. That's just blue, okay? But you can see the Sea of Galilee. And in, off this little blue part over here, it says, Nain, Nazareth, Cana. So that's Galilee. When you're reading in your Bible and it says Jesus went to Galilee, that's where he went, to that, that orangey region, okay? It's like, you know, go, go Longhorns or something. It's like, you know, whatever. I'm not even going to say the T word from south of here. But, you know, it's like he went up there, okay? And so he's up there doing ministry. That's where he lived. He lived in Nazareth right there. And, and this wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Cana of Galilee is about 67 miles straight north of Jerusalem. And so I, I need you to understand, because remember, I told you, I, this is a teaching sermon series, so you need to know stuff as much as you need to apply stuff. This is where Jesus is doing mi uh, ministry. Up there, you can see where Capernaum, see where Capernaum is? When they're done with the wedding, they went all the way up to Capernaum. 
See, way up there. But right now we're dealing with Cana in Galilee because there's another Cana somewhere else, but this is the Cana in Galilee. And so that's where they are. There's a wedding going on. Jesus has been invited. His friends are there. His mom comes up and she says, Jesus, they don't have wine. And he says, woman. Now, some of you think that he's getting sarcastic with his mom. Like, hey, whoa, don't you talk to your mom that way because your dad will slap you into tomorrow. All right? At least in my house that will happen. Okay? Um, but that's not what he's doing. Believe it or not, he's being endearing to her. When he says, woman, think about it for a second. That's the exact way he started the conversation with her from the cross. Woman, behold your son. Son, John, take my mom home. Behold your new mom. See? So we know he's not being sarcastic, but it is one of those things where you show up and it's like, you know, you just want to be at the party. You don't want to be the officiant. And he doesn't appear to have been the officiant. He wasn't in charge. But he shows up at the wedding and he's there with his buddies, his new buddies that he just called and they're following him around everywhere, seeing what he's going to do. And um, they're there and his mom walks through the room. She clearly has some sort of position and relationship to the master of the banquet. Master of the banquet just means caterer. Okay, the guy in charge. But he's in charge of making sure all the food, all the cake, all the wine, and there's got to be enough for everybody for a couple days. And so she walks up and says, Jesus, listen, whoa, we are out of wine. And, and Jesus is like, woman, what does this have to do with me? It's not my time yet. And, and I love, in my mind, the, the whole thing unfolds like this. Jesus, we're out of wine. And she walks away. Hey, you guys, if he says something, if anything comes out of his mouth, you do what he says. And she keeps on going to wherever her responsibility takes her. That's what's going on. Read it and see it unfold in front of your face. Woman, what have I to do with you? Hey, you do whatever he says, okay? And she keeps going. Clearly, clearly, she has seen something that makes her believe that Jesus can do something about that wine. And not like run down to the corner, you know, 7-Eleven in a chariot and get a couple of kegs. Not, not that, okay? Because she could have asked anybody to do that. She has seen something in Jesus' 30 years of life that led her to believe that if she walked up and said, Jesus, do this, she could turn her back on him and walk away and trust him to do it. I believe that. So much so that I run to him as often as I possibly can. And that's what's going on. The master of the banquet does not know what's going on other than the fact he's out of wine. Mary tells Jesus the wine is gone, not grape juice. Wine, generally speaking, pure wine off the vine, fermented, and then cut three parts water, one part wine, served to everybody. Okay? That's how they did it. You can extend it a long way. Jesus refines, Mom, I'm a guest. It's not my business. It's not my authority. I don't have anything to do. But Mary believes. And that's important. That's what John's trying to get you and I in to do, to believe. So she's seen something. Six stone water jars, 20 to 30 gallons each, 170 gallons of water. Now, remember what the water was for? Ceremonial washing. So let's just pretend that the, all the six jars are half full. That means that everybody in town has been walking in, sticking their hands in it, lifting the water out, rubbing their hands, sticking their hands back in, and then taking their hands and doing this, and you know how, wiping it on their pants and stuff like that, Okay. Because you're supposed to provide the water. That's the water he turned to wine. It's like, really? Couldn't we have got bottled water? You know? Couldn't the high bridge spring guy have come and brought the big five-gallon, you know, kegger of water uh, to do that? No. Jesus said, fill that thing clear up. He said, fill those jars. And those servants filled them to the brim with water. 
filled them to the brim. Probably went right out to the stock tank, you know, behind them, you know, where, maybe the well. Maybe they got it out of a well. Yeah, okay, let's do that. They got it out of a well, and they poured it, and there's 170 gallons. I'm, I know it could be 80, but I'm just going with my stock tank. There's 180 gallons of water. Water. It's just water. That's all. Filled to the brim. What does that tell you about your God? If you've surrendered your life to God in heaven, what does that tell you? He didn't say, put some water in there, put five gallons in there. He didn't say, you know, just take one jar and do it. He said, take all six jars, fill all six jars. And if that doesn't tell you, we serve a generous God. Remember, this is not a place where you launch ministries and tell everybody, I'm the son of God. This is a wedding, and he was trying to keep his face out of it. He didn't want to make it about him. He wanted it to be about the bride and the groom. And he said, here, I won't give you some wine. I will give you six stone water jars full, filled to the brim. You think God is being stingy with you? Do you think you serve a stingy God? Is it possible that the only reason that we believe that we serve a stingy God is because we're stingy with God? Do you think it's possible that sometimes God lets us get put in places where we run out of wine so that we can know that we need him to do something and we can decide not to be stingy? When I say not, don't be stingy with God, I'm not talking about your money. I'm talking about your life. I'm talking about your obedience. I'm talking about will you do what God has created you to do to increase the kingdom of God? Do you believe that sometimes God is asking you to do something because he is so generous that if you will just stink and say yes, he will actually get to answer your prayer because that's what he's trying to do, and you're fighting him the whole way. He's trying to answer your prayer, but you keep saying, no, God, you can ask things of me, but not that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to look stupid. Can you imagine these, these uh, servants? Can you imagine they filled those six stone water jars? They're full to the brim, and Jesus says, now take and ladle something. That's what the ladle was for. Dip some out and take it to the Lord of the banquet. Take it to the master of the banquet. You take it to the caterer, the head guy, and you say, listen, I don't know if this is going to help you at all, but here's some. You want to taste this? And he takes it and says, wow, this is a good stuff. It's not even cut. 180 gallons of wine will fill, fill 2,000 four-ounce cups. I know that because my commentary said 2,000, I mean 180 gallons will fill 2,000 four-ounce cups. So I did not have to do the math. And some of you right now are like, four ounces to this, and this many gallons to that, and this many gallons to that. And you're just dying to send me an email going, well, Pastor Joe, uh, actually what it was was, no, no, no listen, it's 2,000 because the commentary says so. And I don't care where you got your math from or your computer or whatever. I don't care. Okay, it's 2,000 cups worth. But if you cut it three to one, it's going to last all week. You'll take some home. But they didn't cut it, and the master of the banquet said, whoa, this is some good stuff. Lots of times, listen to me, write this down. Lots of times in our lives, God brings us to this one simple, seemingly stupid decision. Dip the water or walk away. You see, because these servants filled those jars with buckets from the well. Let's just do that to keep it clean a little bit. And they filled them till there was tension across the top. And then they're like, okay, but it's water and they need wine. And Jesus says, now, dip some out and take it to the Lord of the banquet, the master of the banquet. Now, they had to make a decision, didn't they? 
Do you dip the water or do you walk away? Because that's the stupidest thing I have ever heard in my life. And they did this. They, they did this. They took and they dipped, and I assume it was a ladle, you know, a cup's worth that would fill up the cup, a ladle's worth. And at some point between there and there, this turned to wine. But the miracle was, in my mind, A, the water turned to wine, but B, that the guys actually dipped it out. They actually dipped it out. Because that's where you are in your life. God is saying, listen, I wanted you to pour yourself into filling those jars that I provided for you. Now I want you to dip some out and take it over here. And we're saying, no, Lord. We're going to look like idiots. We're going to look like fools. That is not how you do this. That's not the answer to my prayer. That's not how it happens, God. And we've got all the excuses. And so we say, God, you stay over there. And then we say, God is so stingy with me. And God's like, man, I'm trying to, I gave you 180 gallons worth of prayer answer. <laughs> and you won't even dip out four ounces and take it where I ask you to take it. <laughs> and then we complain because we're human beings. God says, do it my way. And we're like, no, your way's not cool. Your way's not fulfilling. Your way's not, in my life, in my case, fun. Your way's not, your way's not. We got a lot of reasons for your way's not. But God said, there's one reason for my way. And that's that you might have life and have it abundantly. Is that what you want? Then you got to dip the water. You got to dip the water. You got to dip the water knowing that it's water. You just put it in there. You've got to dip the water, trusting God, and you have to decide what dipping that water means. But a lot of times in our lives, God asks us this one seemingly stupid but simple request. Dip the water and take it to the Lord of the banquet. And we won't do it. But we're the ones that lose Jesus didn't need the wine. He was going to leave with his friends. But the servants. Another thing that we can take away from this story real quick, because it is an amazing story. Jesus didn't come to the temple. Jesus didn't come to the Pharisees. Jesus didn't come to the Sadducees. He came and did a miracle that only his disciples and the servants knew about. What does that tell you about our God? He doesn't need the world's accolades. He came to inject himself into your personal life. This was a wedding. Just an everyday occurrence in Cana of Galilee, I'm sure. People got married, people got buried. But Jesus wanted, was welcomed to enter into your party and then provide you with what you needed because he didn't want you embarrassed. He didn't want you to miss out. That's the narrative. Second thing I want to share real quick, and I won't keep you here all day, is this. What's the question? Why does John include this? Why does John include this? Well, because we need to know. I know, but remember, he wants you to believe. Why does he include this? In our humanity, Jesus did the things that he did. You've got to wrap your head around that. Jesus didn't do things in his deity on this earth. He came to this earth. He left his deity, got off the throne, came down here to the earth, and, and set up with his disciples, Okay? But he lived in his humanity because a human being, a perfect human being, had to die for the human beings that sinned against the word of God. Don't eat that fruit. 
If he had died as a God, he didn't have to come and take our form. All he had to do was come down here and die. But he came down here and took our, our form, and the book of Hebrews says that he lived a sinless life and was crucified, the book of Romans as well, for our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, Paul told. See what I'm saying? So what he did, miraculously, he did in his humanity to reveal to you and I the life that we're supposed to live, but we keep missing it. Real quick. Um, in 1983, I was interacting with the Department of Natural Resources up in Ohio. I was not a pastor at the time. I was looking forward to my wedding at the time. I was so excited, and my wife was saying, go get a hobby besides me. And I was like, you're my hobby, girl. She's like, yeah, go get a hobby. And so I went and got a hobby. It's falconry, and, and uh, in the course of events, I was trying to get my hands on a hawk legally um, with a license, and um, I'd come across this hawk. They said, listen, we got this Amish family over in eastern Ohio, and, and they've got this hawk. They took it out of a nest when it was real little. You're not allowed to do that, so don't do it. Um, they fined them um, $500, but didn't put anybody in jail, which is part of the fine normally. Um, but here's the deal. They took the, the hawk, the red-tailed hawk, out of the nest, took it home, and decided to take care of it. And they decided that in order to take care of a baby uh, red-tailed hawk, the smartest thing to do is put it in with chickens. This is not a story. This is something I experienced and interacted with. So they put the red-tailed hawk, the little baby red-tailed hawk, inside the chicken coop with the chickens. And guess what? The chickens took it in and raised it, and it was great. And then they fed the chicken chicken feed, and they fed the hawk hot dogs. And that's nasty, and don't do that, okay? That's awful. That is not what you feed a little hawk that you find. Don't feed it hot dogs. That's nasty. Okay, but that being said, other story. Okay, so the hawk grows up. It's two years old. It's fully fledged out. It actually has a red tail. It's absolutely beautiful, but it runs around the ground like a chicken. It won't fly. Department of Natural Resources calls me and says, I know you want to hunt rabbits with this hawk, but we got a hawk here that's running around on the ground. Maybe you want to take it in and rehab it. I said, will it fly? He said, it won't fly. I said, I don't want it. If it won't chase bunnies, I'm not, it's going to chase hot dogs. I'm going to have to do all my falconry over at the ballpark. You know what I'm saying? It's going to go around snatching hot dogs out of people's hands if I can get it to fly. Nobody ever got it to fly. You know why? Because it didn't know it was a hawk. It thought it was a chicken. And that's the way we live our lives and our relationship to Jesus. We were created as children of the kingdom of heaven. And we're living like the world. And you wonder why miraculous things never happen in your life. They don't happen because that's where we are. We are and we were created as the children of the kingdom of heaven. And we're willing to settle for anything that gets us the candy now. Jesus attends the everyday experiences of your life. And he's willing to inject himself in at the point that you're willing to say, hey, we're out of wine. And when he says, now dip it out, you say, ah, okay, because you said so. The book of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet he was without sin. So let us approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus attends parties. He does. Jesus attends parties. He attended parties. He attended gatherings. He attended dinners. People were getting drunk. People were, were, were sinners. They were sinning at the party. And Jesus attended it, but Jesus did not sin. He attended the party with sinners because he needed to be an example, but he did not sin, and he didn't stand up on a moral soapbox and say, y'all go to hell! As much as he could enter into a conversation, he said, hey, you know there's a better way? The kingdom of God is present. Let me talk to you about it. Let me share it with you. 
let me interact with you. He went home, ate with sinners, but he did not sin with sinners. And we seem to be missing that in the church and in our world. It's okay for us to say sin is something we're staying away from. And then there's the application. When we read this and John tells us this story and we say, John, what do you want us to know? And we begin to believe it. Then we have to stop and say, how are we going to apply it? Well, here, this is how we're going to apply it. God is showing us that he came to engage in your life. God does not want to be a spectator of who you are. He's not going to be a spectator of your relationships. He's not going to be a spectator of your parties. He's not going to be a spectator. He is going to be there, and he is going to push your button, and he is going to scratch your conscience. He's going to encourage you. Jesus is not going to be a spectator when you win, and you win that 5K, and you get that promotion. He's going to be there clapping and cheering you, but you have got to be willing to draw near to him and dip out of whatever he's asking you to dip out of. When the Lord asks you to do it, we need to say yes because he's not going to be a spectator. He wants to do something in your life. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too was the son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save that was lost. God is looking for lost people, but he's not looking for people that have straight up rejected him. When people reject Jesus with a good conscience, he respects them and lets them make their decision, but it's got to be an informed decision. So when we begin to apply this, we recognize that that application is God wanting to inject himself into our lives, but we can say no. What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety and nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he's happier than that one sheep about, than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. So God will come find you as you wander away, but when you look him in the eye like the, the rich young ruler and, and you say, I don't want this, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give up everything I have to come and follow you, and Jesus respected him and didn't chase after him and say, okay, but how about 50%? Okay, how about 25%? Okay, how about 10%? That's a tithe, right? So 10%, he didn't chase him. The deal is, come follow me. You have to decide whether you're going to dip out of that stone jar. Are you going to do it? God is showing us he wants to engage in your life, not be a spectator. God cares about what you're facing. You ever think about that? He really does. Yeah, but he didn't do what I said. He's probably not ever going to do what you say. I love you, but I just need you to know that. He's going to be God. And he's going to do it his way. But guess what? Sometimes you not getting what you're praying for is because you won't go dip out of that stone jar like he told you to. You know he told you to go make it right. He you know he told you to apologize. You know he told you to end it. You know he told you that that's not getting you closer to heaven. He know, you know he told you it's time for a new job. He, you know he told you to go to school. You know he told you to interact with those kids. You know he told you to be faithful to your wife. You know that, but you won't dip out of that jar, and then you're wondering why God won't work for you. Because he's not your employee. He's God. And his invitation is, come, follow me. And when it doesn't make sense, the invitation is still, come, follow me, when it doesn't make sense. That's the invitation every single time. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, Jesus said? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. In another account it says yet not one of them falls to the ground that the lord god is not aware of that sparrow and then somebody wrote a song his eye is on the sparrow we all sing it it's great but we don't apply it to ourselves it's about the little sparrow no it's not it's about you god 
sees you. And he knows what you're facing. Indeed, the very numbers of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. So God knows the number of hair on each and every single one of us in his head. Well, you know, Joe, I'm not sure how I can believe that God could, you know, memorize the number of hairs on everybody's head in the world, seven billion people coming up on eight, and how is he going to know, and what if somebody's hair falls out, you know, when you're laying on your bed at night, and head, whoa, don't anthropomorphize God. Don't shrink God down to humanity so that you can determine how God can and can't do it because you're not God. You were created by him. How would you possibly understand how he can know how many hairs are on your head? you got to decide whether or not John says you believe it. And I do because John wrote it down and he saw it and I trust his testimony. It's not a carefully researched account. It's a laid down account of a man that walked with Jesus, held his hand, picked up his robe, probably grabbed his shoes because Jesus forgot him, went and got him dinner when they were with the woman at the well, um, interacted with people. John himself cast out demons. John himself healed people. John himself said the kingdom of God is at hand. John said that. And he wrote this letter, and people are like, I don't believe that. But you'll believe a science book written by a guy that never met a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Really? Well, yeah, but he saw the bones. He never saw those bones stand up and talk to him. My John saw a kid raised from the dead because Jesus did it. And we're like, well, that's suspect. But if I tell you that billions and billions of years ago, dinosaurs walked the earth, and that's where human beings came from, you'll say, oh, yeah, a guy wrote it down right there in that book. And you'll take his word for it. I choose to believe this book. I'm not saying science is against the Bible, and I'm not saying the Bible's against science. I'm just saying if I have to bet my eternity on something, it's not going to be a dinosaur. It's going to be Jesus the Christ who came and the testimony of a man who saw it all happen and said I was there. Even when it's scary, God is asking us to step up through belief. Yes, he is asking you to end it. Yes, he is asking you to start it. Yes, he is asking you to put it down. Yes, he is asking you to pick it up. And I'm saying all this because I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you brought into this church when you came into this church. I don't know what you were thinking. I don't know what you were crying out for. I don't know what your marriage looks like. I don't know what your relationships look like. I don't know where your children are. But I know this, that my God is still on the throne and my God is trying to get it into your head that he loves you more than you can imagine even if you're not getting what you want right now. Because this is the request that he's making of you today. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and some of you are in here and you know what that means to your life he's saying get busy get to work at it do your part and then he's saying now draw some out dip it out and you're saying i can't do that lord because i don't i don't believe that's wine and they're expecting wine listen to me today i believe with all of my heart god is trying to answer your prayer I don't know if it's a health issue. I don't know if it's a relational issue. I don't know if it's a financial issue. But I do believe in the miraculous side of the kingdom of heaven that I was created as a spiritual being and I inhabit this earthly body temporarily. But spiritual beings 
who worship a spiritual God should start expecting spiritual things to happen and stop making excuses for why some guy that wrote a textbook is telling you that God doesn't do that anymore. Because the book I'm working from doesn't say that. What it says is, are you going to dip the water out of the stone jar or not? And I want to be one who gets everything that Jesus has for me. John wants you to believe that you serve a God that died for the world and therefore for you. God wants you to, John wants you to believe that you serve a God who cares about every tear that has fallen off of your face. You guys too. You guys too. Because you were broken up over a girl, broken up over your children, broken up over your husband, broken up over your job, broken up over your embarrassment, broken up over. Because God cares that in the midst of all that brokenness, that you know he loves you and he's watching you. And it's not a test the way we consider tests. It's a test to like, help me, let me help you get through it. And it's scary. And sometimes it's not scary. Sometimes it's so much fun, you wonder if you're sinning. But it's still God. And he loves you. And you got to stop doing it your way and start doing it his way. Listen to him say today, fill the jar. What's the jar? Metaphorically, you got a wedding going on? Something's going on in your life that you need Jesus to show up to, but you got to let him, he's not going to be a spectator. you got to let him do it. And it's going to be scary. I promise you it is. If anybody could do it, why would he ask us? We don't earn God's favor. We have God's favor. Will we act on God's favor? Will we do that? These people are up here because they want to pray for you because I believe the power of God enters us at times through prayers when somebody lays hands on us and lets the Holy Spirit move in a powerful way. I believe that. If you're facing a wedding at Canaan, I don't know what it is. If you're afraid to put your ladle in that jar, if it's time for you to fill that jar, I want to encourage you to do it and give us a chance to pray for you. If it's time for you to surrender your life to Jesus, stop playing Christian and start being a Christian, then I want to encourage you in that as well. This is a day for you. This is a day. Let's have a word of prayer. We're going to sing a song. And these people, you move during the song. They want to pray for you. But let's see what the Lord wants to do in your life. Father, as we come before you, we thank you for this day and for what you're doing and for how amazing this story is and what it is that John is saying to us that you want to do in our lives. And God, I hear you. We're filling up our, our jar. We're, we're doing the church thing. We're moving it forward. I'm trying to answer the things that you're challenging me in, even when they're uncomfortable. God, but I, I am ready to dip my ladle in that jar personally. God, I don't want more than you're giving me and I don't want less than you're giving me. And I'm not talking about stuff. I want you. I want more of you. I want to be moved by you. I want to be used by you. I want to see people's lives changed by you, God. I just want to be a part of it. I want to be involved in it. I want to change our community, God. And Lord, I want to do it with people that you inhabit, that you're just pouring your wine into. But right now, God, we're sick and we're hurting. God, we heard the cancer word this past week, and I rebuked that in the name of Jesus and say, get out. Pestilence came in the garden, and I don't understand everything, but you said we have authority. So I'll act, you act, and we'll see people get better, God. But that's on you. I'm praying. I'm speaking against that cancer. 
as I come before you, God, you said two or three are gathered together. There I am in the midst of you. And you said whatever you agree upon this earth is agreed in heaven, God. And I agree that these people's sins are forgiven, that my sins are forgiven. I know they were forgiven 2,000 years ago. I just need to get up and say, God, forgive me. I've sinned. And so, God, we do. And we say, just let your forgiveness wash over us and teach us to forgive other people who've sinned against us and hurt us, God, and left us, abandoned us. Because you know what that feels like, Lord. Today, right here, right now, make it clear. Where are you asking us to put our ladle? Where are you asking us to dip out of? Or where are you asking us to fill and pour into? Because we want to be obedient to you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, once you rise to your feet in this closing song, these people are going to be up here. Don't leave home. Don't leave here. <laughs> Don't leave home. Don't leave here without letting people pray over you. Jesus loves you, he said. He wants to do something in your life.